Good morning. It's Friday, the 20th of October, and this is Govindra Jethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top stories and themes for the day British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak follows US President Joe Biden into Israel. Oil pauses around $90 a barrel now. Rupee closes at a record low again as Asian currencies reel under pressure from the US dollar. Google announces Pixel phone manufacture in India and small loans for businesses via GPay. India is seeing a consistent rise in self-employment levels. What does that mean? World Cup cricket pulls 268 million television viewers for 11 matches even as streaming numbers hit records. And Netflix tastes blood of subscribers. This is a core report with Govindraj Atiraj. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak reached Israel yesterday and met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu amidst attempts to bring about peace and humanitarian aid to those affected in Gaza. Markets world over obviously were affected and continue to be. In India, the BSE Sensex ended 248 points lower at 65,629. The Nifty 50, on the other hand, settled at 19,625, down 46 points. In international commodity markets, oil fell as the United States also eased crude sanctions against Venezuela causing it to drop back after spiking thanks to Middle East war tensions. Brent has now dropped to about $90 a barrel after touching a two-week high on Wednesday. Oil, as we've been discussing here, has been volatile since the October 7th attack on Israel by terrorist group Hamas. Speaking of oil, the first signs of stress are showing in airline projections internationally, and this might affect Indian airlines too very soon. The American Airlines Group has slashed its 2023 earnings expectations hit by jet fuel prices that have climbed more than 26% since the start of the third quarter, as well as, interestingly, sagging demand, according to Bloomberg. Because most tickets are sold well in advance, there's usually a lag time of a few months before carriers can raise fares to begin recovering higher fuel costs. Every 10 cent per gallon increase in the price per year of fuel adds about $2 billion in costs for the US passenger and cargo airline industry, according to the Airlines for America group. Currencies continue to be under pressure across the region. First, the rupee. It ended at a record closing low of 83 rupees 28 paise against the US dollar on Monday. The fall was small, just 2 paise against Friday's close of 83.26, but sufficient to send it to the record books. The rupee touched a record low of 83.29 in October 22, but not closed at that point. Malaysia's ringgit has fallen to its weakest level since the Asian financial crisis of 1998, according to Bloomberg. Japan's yen, as it traded within a whisker of 150 per dollar, stoking concern that authorities would intervene to support the currency, Bloomberg said. And Google comes marching in. Alphabet yesterday announced it would start production in India of its Pixel 8 smartphones in time to reach the market by 2024. The company said it's its annual Google for India event in New Delhi, along with a string of other announcements. Google will partner with local and global suppliers to put together its first Made India handsets, hardware chief Rick Osterlaw said at the event, as reported by Business Standard. Two weeks ago, Google had said it would start manufacturing Google Chromebook laptops along with HP at a plant near Chennai. Production would have already started off for those laptops and these are primarily aimed at the education sector as they are in countries like the United States. There were other announcements as well as they usually are at this annual event. 
Google also announced sachet loans on the Google Pay application to target small businesses in the country. Google India said that merchants in India often need smaller loans, hence the sachet loans on the GPay application. So the company will provide or front end to be more specific loans to small businesses at just 15000 rupees that can be repaid in smaller repayment amounts as low as 111 rupees Google India said the tech giant has partnered with DMI finance to provide the loan services and presumably they would also be a bank or at least the NBFC that's been mentioned Google Pay has also enabled a credit line for merchants in partnership with ePay later helping to solve the working capital requirements of merchants and they can use it across all online and offline distributors to buy their stocks and supplies. Google India also launched credit lines on the UPI app in collaboration with ICICI Bank and expanded the portfolio of personal loans on Google Pay by partnering with Axis Bank. Fresh rules on laptop imports. Speaking of Google manufacturing phones, imports of laptops, tablets and personal computers will now have to go through a new government system of authorization according to Reuters. The system aims to monitor and only monitor shipments of such hardware without hurting market supply government officials said on Thursday. The new import management system takes in effect from end of this month and requires companies to register the quantity and value of imports but the government will not reject any import requests and will only use the data for monitoring officials said. The policy in its current form represents several walkbacks if one can call it that from the original announcements to license imports in August in an abrupt and most 70s like move. Its purpose is to ensure that all this provides us with the kind of data and information we need to make sure that we have a completely trusted digital system S Krishnan senior bureaucrat in the electronics and infotech ministry said according to Reuters. Now the decision obviously provides relief for global laptop makers like Dell, Apple, HP, Samsung and Lenovo all of whom must have begged pleaded and cajoled the government saying that they were not ready for import restrictions and a full shift to a India only manufacture was not possible at least not so suddenly It's KitKat all the way Results season continues as we tell you now every day. Consumer products major Nestle India said its net profits for the third quarter of the current calendar year, calendar remember that, saw a 37% rise to about 908 crore according to a filing with the Bombay Stock Exchange. KitKat, Nescafe Classic and Nescafe Sunrise supported by Munch and Milkmaid led the way the company said. So chocolate, coffee and milk products. Sequentially, the net profit was up about 30%. The company declared a second interim dividend of 140 rupees per equity share of rupees 10 each for the year 23. It also announced a stock split of each fully paid up equity share of 10 rupees into 10 equity shares of face value of 1 rupee each. So if you are planning to buy Nestle shares and it looks cheap remember this is why it could be so. Revenue from operations for the third quarter of the calendar year came in at about 5036 crores up about 9.5%. Nestle India's chairman and managing director Suresh Narayanan said that domestic sales grew double digit on account of mix volume and price key brands continue to perform well led by KitKat Nescafe Classic Nescafe Sunrise supported by Munch and Milkmaid we crossed 5000 crores which is the first in any quarter in the history of the company and a landmark for us he said interestingly Nestle said that its e-commerce channel contributed to about 6% of quarterly sales with continued growth across product groups India's economy is getting formalized but by how much 
wider indicators like more bank accounts, digital transfers, tax collection net being widened would obviously point in the direction of the Indian economy getting more formalized. However, this formalization in terms of production is not increasing or resulting in an increase in formal employment, according to the business standard. Last week, the Ministry of Statistics and Program Implementation released the results of the what is known as the Periodic Labor Force Survey for the period of July 22 to June 23. Now, this is the sixth PLFS report and each tracks a 12-month period between July and June. So, India has been seeing a consistent increase in self-employment with well over half the country's workforce being self-employed. In 22-23, for instance, about 57% of workers in so-called usual status were self-employed, which was higher than in previous years, according to the business standard, which adds that the structure of the labor market in India is skewed towards self-employment, which keeps earnings depressed. Self-employment often becomes a fallback option for workers who are unable to find work but also cannot afford to exit the workforce. An Azim Premji University State of Working India report 2023 says the recent rise in rates of female labor force participation is due to a distress-led increase in self-employment, which we also saw during COVID. Now, this employment trend does not obviously signify a surge in genuine entrepreneurship, but rather reflects the scarcity of satisfactory job, says the business standard. So the PLFS provides data on different metrics which helps or could help policymakers to understand the proportion of people demanding work, the proportion of people among them who fail to get a job, gender differences in employment, as well as wages, etc. The PLFS also tells the sectoral distribution of workers in the economy, for example, how many are in agriculture and other sectors, or the type of work they do. For example, casual labor, how many work for themselves, how many have salary employees or salary jobs, and so on. I reached out to Ashok K. Bhattacharya, Editorial Director of Business Standard, and I began by asking him how we should be looking at these PLFS numbers in an attempt to gauge the health of India's economy. Well, the survey is quite clear that it, you know, it categorizes employment categories into broadly four groups. One is self-employment. Second one is self-employment among women and casual labor. And then salaried wages, you know, wage earnings. Now, if you see the share of self-employment and if you look at 2017-18, which is the pre-COVID year, or even if you take that 2018-19, or even if you take 2019-20, the self-employment levels were around 52 53%. And if you look at the COVID years, the self-employment levels are actually rising. You know, the first year of the COVID of 2020-21, it went up to 55.6. Then the following year, it was went up to 55.8. And 22-23, post-COVID year, you actually see a sharper rise to 57.3%. Now, this clearly shows that even while the economy is getting formalized, formal jobs are not growing. So this is certainly a cause for concern because the same period you take the regular salaried wage earnings, their share is actually dropping from around 23 or 24% in the pre-COVID years to 31% in 2022-23, which is last year. So what you are seeing is that while the overall labor force participation, the woman participation in workforce, they are all rising, but the nature of their participation has seen a dramatic change, which raises many questions that why is it that the corporate sector or the organized sector, which is uh, doing quite well from the income side, 
from the production side, if you see the corporate sector results, they're doing quite well. And yet, the organized sector employment, the salaried wage earners, their number is declining. So this is a dichotomy, and this is also a reflection of how the organized sector probably has cut short and has reduced its employment levels, while probably it is also a reflection of the rise of the gig economy, where most jobs are not really regular wage-earning jobs, but actually contractual jobs, which will be captured in self-employment categories, and it will not be captured in a wage-earning category. So it's a clear sign that which direction the economy is moving as we come out of COVID. Right. And I'm sure the fact that the IT sector is also now shrinking and the latest quarter numbers on total employment levels, which are obviously down, is going to contribute to this. But a slightly larger question, AKB, this shift between, let's say, people who are earlier showing up, at least in absolute numbers in the organized sector, now shifting to the unorganized or self-employed sector, is that a bad thing? Well, it depends from which perspective you're seeing. If you're seeing it from the corporate sector, they are actually increasing your margins. So they are showing increased profit growth. They are paying higher taxes. But from a, purely from the social security point of view, a self-employed person does not enjoy the kind of social security benefits that is available to a regular wage earner. So purely from a corporate sector point of view, this is clearly contributing to the growth. But from the employee, from the labor market point of view, Unless there is a strong dose of social security benefits meant for the self-employed persons and the contract workers, I think it's a bad thing from a macroeconomic perspective. And would there be any estimate of what these numbers could be, you know, in millions of people, let's say, who could have moved away from the organized sector to the self-employed category? To look at labor force participation, say around 55% right now, which is the year that we're talking about last year. Now, 55%, and you say that out of 55% of your total workforce, which is around, let's say, 470 million people, so 55% would be needy is a figure, and 22% is only the wage earners now, 21%. So 21% of that 55% is what the number is. So one has to. 21% of 235 million, roughly. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That would be the wage earners and 57% of that 235 would be around self-employed. Right. What are the chances that people are declaring their status accurately or the data is being collected and reported accurately? This data that we, have, we talked about that the self-employment levels is 57% is uh, the data derived from what is called the usual status, which means that you are asked that in the last one year, were you employed and how were you employed? How many days in the year were you employed? So this is the data from usual status. Now, when you get the data on whether you are, how much you are earning, what is your labor force participation unions, are you unemployed or not? That is the data is coming from the current weekly status, which means that in the last one week, were you employed or not? So a lot of statisticians believe that the current weekly status gives you a better assessment of the job market than the usual status number because normally people tend to forget about what has happened in the last one year. 
So that caveat must be introduced that the self-employment numbers or the salaried wage numbers is a number that is derived from the usual status survey, not from the current weekly status survey. So that caveat must be introduced in this assessment. So if we were to look ahead now, let's assume that all these figures are accurate and there is a rise in self-employment, which is not necessarily voluntary in the truest sense. What would be your policy prescription or thought apart from the social security net, which you've already touched upon? I think the policy should try to evaluate how well the contractual labor market is responding to the demand supply situation. And if there are more people who are being hired as contractual workers, to what extent the labor policy change that was introduced by having fixed contract work for various things with the social security benefits, to what extent that policy can be implemented uniformly across sectors. Because the government does have a policy on fixed contract workers and the government did announce that fixed contract workers should also get social security benefits but in its actual implementation, one has not seen that policy being implemented as well as it should have been. So I think that is a clear response from a policy point of view that by all means, if there is a gradual change from salaried wage earners to self-employed who are mostly on contract workers or who are part of the big economy, how do you bring them under the social security net that they, they truly deserve? AKB, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Disney Hotstar sees 268 million television viewers for 11 World Cup matches. Live broadcasts for the first 11 matches of the World Cup cricket tournament have been watched by about 268 million viewers on linear television, Disney Hotstar said on Thursday. Of this, some 96 million young working professionals aged 22 to 40 tuned in, which is about 5% higher than in 2019. The peak live concurrency for the tournament is 56 million viewers registered during the India vs Australia match in Chennai on October 8th, said the company. Earlier, Disney and Hotstar reported a historic concurrent viewership of 35 million viewers online during the ICC Men's Cricket World Cup 2023 match between India and Pakistan. This apparently is the highest peak concurrency number achieved across all formats of cricket. The Asia Cup 2023, which you may have caught earlier, garnered an overwhelming response from fans, said Disney, with 28 million viewers for the India vs Pakistan match and 21 million viewers for India vs Sri Lanka, according to Disney. So to now understand the numbers in context, I reached out to Sanjog Gupta, head of sports at Disney and Star, and I began by asking him how he was taking in these numbers. The World Cup's got off to a solid start moving. We've had a couple of big hits. And overall, we're in a good position after the first power play. That's how I would define the start of the World Cup. TV viewers, we are uh, at about 260 million. That is the total number of viewers who have tuned in for the first 11 games. We are nearing 60 billion viewing minutes. That's the total watch time. And an indicator of how engaging the World Cup has been which is a significant growth, almost a 22% growth over the last edition of the World Cup in 2019. Uh, the big hit there, as far as television is concerned, one that we did for six, is uh, the popularity of the World Cup among premium audiences. So if you look at the segment of audiences um, in SEC, A&P, the higher socioeconomic classes, 
we've seen growth of 40 and 24% respectively in the watch time for these SECs. Uh, that basically means that we are attracting higher premium audiences and keeping them engaged for longer in the first 11 matches of the World Cup compared to where we were in 2019. The big hit on the digital side is the concurrency number on the India-Pakistan game. We had uh, 35 million concurrent users watching the World Cup at the same time during the India-Pakistan match, which set a world record for any sporting event on a digital platform. Right. So to come back to the roughly 60 billion minutes you talked about, so what does that tell us in terms of overall viewership and the way people are consuming content right now, at least in cricket, Sanjog? So what we are seeing are two things uh, going. One, the allure or stature of the World Cup is attracting a significant audience to come and tune in early. We had two India matches till now. Remember, India plays nine matches in the league stage and potentially uh, a semi-final and a final going by the form uh, that they're in. Which means that this audience size will only grow as the tournament gains momentum. What we are also seeing in week two of the tournament, and I'm sure you were watching, are uh, two big upsets with uh, Afghanistan beating England and Netherlands beating South Africa, which has thrown the tournament wide open. And we're seeing fluctuating fortunes for the top teams, Australia, England, South Africa. And that has created an added layer of interest in the non-India games. So the India games tend to be the ones that are most watched and they continue to be. But it's the non-India games which are also driving growth because we are seeing the tournament being flung wide open on account of these two upsets and the momentum that uh, the big teams are not being able to get. Would the takeaway also therefore be that people are watching television? I mean, you know, the big question outside in is that the number of people who are watching television as in linear television, you know, through the classic Tata Sky and so on, or Tata Play as it's called today, would be reducing. So does this suggest that it's not changing or is it it's increasing? TV consumption is as robust as it has ever been, woman, And that's what these numbers indicate. I think what has happened is, Fans have started accessing devices based on convenience, accessibility, and just their preference at that point of time. If I'm mobile and I don't have access to a big screen, I choose to engage on the mobile device because I don't have another option. But when I'm home and I want a communal experience or a familial experience which is immersive and uninterrupted, I choose to watch it on TV. So we will see... This pattern continues where the same fan will actually choose to consume the same event or the same game across different devices based on his or her availability and the accessibility to the device that he or she has at that point. To cut a long story short, television is strong, it seems to be growing, and it seems to be aggregating audiences at scale for an event of stature, which is what the World Cup is delivering. And we're seeing aggregation on the digital side as well. A comparable number, the concurrency, the peak concurrency on digital, on the India-Pakistan game, which is the highest on digital for this tournament, was about 35 million. Now, we have TV data for the first 11 games, which includes the India-Australia game. And the peak concurrency for the India-Australia game was about 60 million. So, clearly, there is immense appetite to watch live cricket, which in some sense is this shared experience that all of us have as fans on the big screen 
and also look at avenues to stay connected with the game on the mobile street. Right. And I know it's still early days. How is all of this playing out from a monetization point of view, Sanjeev? It's again been very strong. I think the combination of the stature of the World Cup, the interesting run-up to the World Cup you had with the Isha Cup, which also saw record viewership, the festive season and advertisers obviously wanting to spend big to acquire users or build brand saliency has meant that we've signed up 27 sponsors across TV and digital. And I think at last count, more than 500 advertisers. The interesting thing is we are still seeing a lot of demand for inventory on the World Cup because a lot of advertisers have still not started their campaigns because Diwali is still some time away. So what we are now trying to figure out is how do we make the most of the demand that exists, which will obviously grow on the back of the viewership results that we've seen over the first couple of weeks and the momentum that has been built into the tournament and maximize both value for advertisers as well as value for fans. Right. Sanjog, uh, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure, Govind. Thank you so much. Record numbers at the box office. India's biggest multiplex operator, PVR Inox, posted its highest ever quarterly profit as people returned to theatres to watch a series of Bollywood and Hollywood blockbusters. PVR Inox sold about 48 million movie tickets in the three months through September, a 64% jump on merged ticket sales. I'll explain what merged is in a moment as compared to a year ago. Quarterly profit was about 166 crores, up from a loss of a 71 crore last year, according to Bloomberg. Now, PVR Inox, the merged entity, was created earlier this year following a merger between PVR and Inox Leisure. Thanks to COVID and a series of flops, trade analysts, among others, had pretty much written off Bollywood this year, even as recently as four months ago. Till Shah Rukh Khan came along and did what all Bollywood heroes do, save the day. At least sometimes. Roughly 70% of Bollywood's revenue comes from theatrical or movie hall revenue, while 30% comes from the streaming giants, one of whom we will talk about in a moment. This quarter also saw the release of some of the best-grossing Hindi movies of all times, including Jawan, starring Shah Rukh Khan, and Gadar 2. Hollywood contributed its bit with Oppenheimer and Barbie. Analysts are saying, including some the core has been speaking to, that such a strong run for the rest of the year is tough. But then, like in the movies, you never know when there is a twist in the tale. And Netflix tastes blood. Speaking about movies and streaming, Netflix has said that its effort to limit password sharing has led to an almost 11% rise in subscriptions in the third quarter, and a better-than-expected result that's now encouraging it to increase prices in the United States and other markets, the Wall Street Journal is reporting. The streaming giant added almost 8.8 million subscribers in the third quarter with customer growth in every region, its largest quarterly customer gain since the second quarter of 2020, which of course, as you know, times with COVID. It would of course be interesting to know how many of these subscribers have been forced to subscribe after being kicked off from the, well, family plan, and how many of them are new. Nevertheless, Netflix ended the quarter with 247 million paid subscribers, up 11% from a year earlier. So the company now wants to raise plans for its basic plan in the United States, which is no longer available to new customers, to about $12 from about $9.99, or rather $11.99 from $9.99, and up the cost of its premium plan to $22.99 from $19.99. So the question, of course, is will India follow in terms of price hike? 
Let's see. Netflix has to contend with Reliance Geo Cinema in India, apart from all the other competitors like Amazon, Apple and Disney, who it faces off in other countries as well. That's it from me then. Have a great weekend. Bye for now. This was the core report with me Govind Raj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.